the Buddha said that there are two kinds of rare and precious beings in this world. One who extends kindness and one who receives it. Or one who practices generosity and one who is grateful or experiences gratitude. And this is what I'd like to speak about tonight. These very nourishing and important qualities that are recognized in every spiritual tradition and that are a very significant part of the foundation for the development of wisdom and compassion. There's a proverb that says, he who allows his day to pass by without practicing generosity and appreciating life's pleasures is like a blacksmith's bellows. He breathes but does not live. It's mentioned often in the texts that the Buddha taught generosity before morality or ethical conduct and morality before meditation or the development of the mind. And when we look at these areas, we can see that they're not really separate. In fact, the guidelines for ethical conduct The precepts are referred to in the Anguttara Nikaya as the five greatest gifts that we can give, valued by noble men and noble women throughout time. It says that these are gifts whose value was known in the past, is known in the present, and will continue to be known in the future. In observing and upholding the precepts, we're giving the tremendous gift of safety, of fearlessness. We're giving the gift of ease to other living beings. We're giving our love and our care. So the precepts are a kind of protection, but they're also of great help as we cultivate important qualities that are beneficial in both practice and in daily life. Paying attention to the areas outlined in the precepts, not harming living beings, not taking what is not offered, not harming with our sexual energy, not lying, and not clouding the mind with intoxicants, we're strengthening mindfulness, discernment, resolve, discipline. It's a practice of learning how to be mindful and skillful very tangibly in both body and mind. The spirit in which this practice is undertaken is really critical. So if one clings to the precepts or identifies with them or considers oneself superior to others, 
Or if self-blame or condemnation come up when we feel that we're not quite measuring up. This isn't in accordance with their true purpose. But if one commits to the precepts as a practice, as guidelines, or areas to continually train in mindfulness, then they're a great support. Just noticing when we're about to break one of them is like a mindfulness bell. We wake up. We pay attention to what we're doing. And when we're mindfully present, we have more choice. Rather than being on automatic pilot, it's possible to choose more skillful action. So we don't take the precepts as rules of behavior to be taken on unthinkingly. They're much more tools of reflection. And they serve as a bridge, really, to connect our deepest understandings, our deepest alignment with our actions. It can be useful at times to think of the precepts, the practice of the precepts, in terms of their positive counterparts. That what we're cultivating is kindness and compassion, generosity and renunciation, contentment, a love of the truth, and clarity of mind. Sila Ethical conduct is said to be like a perfume that gives a pleasant scent, the scent of virtue. We can feel supported in this. Generosity as a practice has a very important purifying capacity. It helps to clear the mind and heart, to make us ready for meditative insight and for progress on the path of awakening. Though our personal motivations or even goals in practice might appear to be different on the surface, underneath, inevitably, they boil down to the lessening and ultimately the uprooting of greed, hatred, and delusion in our lives. Cultivating and practicing generosity supports this goal very directly. Generosity itself is a greater force than that of greed or hatred. So when we give of ourselves, either materially or of our presence, we're cultivating kindness, selflessness, compassion, and wisdom, and the forces of attachment and aversion are weakening. Also, when we make it a practice to give, we're developing a mind that's agile rather than fixed and rigid. And this agility of mind is really beneficial in meditation practice and in the uprooting of delusion. The Buddha knew very well the potential and the importance of generosity as part of the spiritual path, 
And he made the often quoted statement that if people only knew the power of giving, as he did, they would not take a single meal without sharing their food with others. Some years back, I had the opportunity to travel for a time in India with a few friends from here in Barrie. We went together, and I had the good fortune to visit with Deepama, who is a very accomplished yogi and teacher. And I remember this one day when we were visiting with her, and we were having a meal at uh, a big, long table in Bodhgaya. And we were waiting at this table for our food to come, and it just so happened that Deepama received her food first. And when her food came, she just immediately started feeding it to us. And I remember, she's a very tiny woman. She was a very tiny woman. And she was taking handfuls of the food and reaching across the table and putting them in our mouths. And it felt like her whole hand was going in my mouth. She was so small. But she was really joyful doing it. It was so beautiful to watch. There was such happiness in her sharing. The relevance of generosity to our practice is enormous. There's a selfless quality that arises really naturally in giving. We simply have another in mind rather than ourselves. And when we give something really freely, there's an unconditional aspect to it. There's just the giving. No one to hold on to anything just the letting go, just that place of connection with another in sharing. Just this evening I was reading something and came across this quotation from Viktor Frankl, who was a survivor of Auschwitz. He said, We who lived in concentration camps can remember those who walked through the huts comforting others, giving away their last piece of bread. They may have been few in number, but they offer sufficient proof that everything can be taken from a person but one thing, the last of human freedoms, to choose one's attitude in any given set of circumstances, to choose one's own way. I think it's helpful to remember that in cultivating generosity, it's something that we can choose in any given moment. And that We're choosing it as a practice, as a process of openness of heart and connection with another. So that we're not not practicing it because of some moral imperative, because we think we should. Rather, because we want to be free, 
free from the bondage of greed and aversion, free from the delusion of self. Over time, as we practice this, we come to appreciate the feeling of letting go, the feeling of non-attachment. It's as though we acquire a taste for it. We're so conditioned to hold on, to accumulate, to possess. But as our understanding deepens, we know more and more the suffering associated with clinging. And we really begin to taste the sweetness of letting go, that sweet freedom in the heart. In the Buddhist teachings about generosity, it's said that ideally the giver should be delighted before, during, and after giving. Before giving, we can be happy as we anticipate the opportunity to give, the opportunity to exercise generosity. While giving, we experience the joy of knowing that we're making another happy by fulfilling a need. After giving, there's the satisfaction of having done a good deed, in a way, basking in the wholesomeness of that action. This is a quotation by John D. Rockefeller, Jr. Think of giving not as a duty, but as a privilege. When we experience the happiness before, during, and after giving, we come to understand the privilege that it is. In the suttas, this is elaborated on even further. It said that it's not even possible to estimate the amount of merit that accrues when an offering is endowed with six particular characteristics. And I just mentioned the first three characteristics, the happiness of the giver before, during, and after giving. It's that nobility of thought without a trace of greed before, during, and after the offering that makes a gift truly great. The second three characteristics reside with the recipient. If that person is also free from greed, hatred, and delusion, or even if they're working toward the elimination of these unwholesome states, then the merit from that act of generosity is said to be as immeasurable as the waters of the ocean. It's not so common in our experience to have those six characteristics in place. But even when one of them is there, is strong, it's so inspiring. I have a really dear friend who's a tremendous source of inspiration to me in this regard. She's one of those rare beings to whom generosity seems to come quite easily. Her delight in giving is so apparent. Over the years of our friendship, she's given me so much in so many different ways. She's put me up, housed me, fed me, 
taking care of me in that way with such love and kindness. But she also gives of herself in very profound ways. She has an amazing ability to shift her focus from herself to another. So, for example, over the years, at different times, we've made plans together. And then, for one reason or another, I've had to cancel or change the plan as it's evolving. And although she might feel disappointed because it was something that she was looking forward to, she's very um, skillful at shifting her focus in that moment to me and to what I need and really respecting that and actually appreciating that I'm taking care of myself and I'm doing what I need to do. It's as though we aren't separate. So if I take care of myself, she benefits as well. I've really learned that from her and tried to put it into practice in my own relationships. It makes it easy to be really safe with her, to be honest. It's a tremendous gift to give to another. In a way, it's not so different from the quality of mudita, the quality of heart that delights in the happiness of another, because it's that same ability to shift our focus from oneself to another and to care about their well-being as well as our own. Parents get to develop and practice this a lot, this kind of giving that tremendous generosity of the heart. But as I said a few moments ago, often it doesn't come that easily. It doesn't come that readily. The conditioning to hold on, to accumulate, in a way to take a kind of false refuge in our belongings is so strong. So it's important that we take an honest look at where we are with it and make it a practice, something to explore, something to grow into. There's a framework in the teachings that talks about three different kinds of giving. And they're all valuable. They're all steps on the path of developing generosity. The first kind of giving is called miserly giving. And it's just what it sounds like. So we have some wholesome motivation to give, but the root unwholesome forces of greed, hatred, and delusion are still exerting their influence. So we're not really giving the very best of what we have to offer, and we're not really delighting in the giving. Instead, perhaps we're giving something that doesn't mean that much to us. Or we're stingy in our minds and our hearts, if not in the offering itself. But still we give, which is a start, which is important. Sometimes I think that 
this quality of miserly giving can come into play on retreat or in our lives if we're showing up in a way half-heartedly, not fully giving ourselves. It can happen sometimes that there's a strong motivation, for example, to come on a retreat. And then once we get there, there are all the difficulties, the challenges. And it's hard. It's hard work. So if our pattern is to be resistant or to hold back or to think that we're not up to the task, we might find that that's how we're approaching practice. And it can help, I think, to recommit ourselves as a practice of generosity. That this is something we're giving ourselves. Can we give ourselves to it very fully? The second kind of giving is called friendly giving. In this case, there's more ease in the giving, in the process. We give more readily, more freely. The forces of attachment and ill will have loosened their hold significantly. And there's much more of a connection with what we're doing. There's a kind of ease or simplicity in this kind of giving. It just happens freely. And the third kind of giving is called noble giving. This is a highly developed form of generosity where we give the very best of what we have to offer. There's a wonderful story from the suttas about a man called Ekasatika, which means one shawl. In the time of the Buddha, there was a couple, a husband and wife, who were very devoted to the Buddha. They were middle-aged, and all their lives they'd been very poor. They had very little that they could call their own. Their greatest enjoyment in life was listening to the teachings of the Buddha. Because they were so poor, they dressed very simply. The man wore only a dhoti, a kind of trousers made from one cloth that wraps around the body, and his upper body was bare. The woman had a simple sari. Between them, they had only one shawl with which to cover themselves when they went to hear the Buddha speak. So they would take turns. One night, the man would go, and the next night, the woman would go. One day, the Buddha was giving a talk on generosity that was so inspiring He talked about generosity as the base or the foundation for the whole spiritual path. It was the husband's turn to be at the talk. And as he listened, the feeling arose very strongly in him to offer something, to give something. But he thought, I'm poor. What do I have to give? The only thing I own is this one shawl. I want to give something to the Buddha. But what about my wife? If I give this one shawl, she won't be able to come again to hear any more teachings. But then again, the feeling arose really strongly to give. And then he started thinking, neither one of us will will be able to come again. 
we'll never hear the Dharma again because we won't have suitable dress. And this went on and on for quite a while. The feeling to give would arise, then he would doubt and wonder if he could, and it went back and forth and back and forth like a war inside. At some point in the process, this inner battle that he was engaged in was over. And he knew that he had to make the offering of their one shawl. He was so happy when this battle was over that he stood up and shouted out loud, I won! I won! And it happened that in the gathering that evening was a very important king, King Kosala. And when he heard this poor man yelling, I won, he jumped up and pulled out his sword. And he brandished it at the man and insisted that he tell him what it was that he had won. The man quickly exclaimed, Not your kingdom. And he explained to King Kosala how he had defeated his own greed. As the king listened to this poor man's story, he felt so touched and inspired. And he thought, I am a great king, but I am not so great as this simple man. And he, in turn, was inspired to be generous. So, as the story goes, he gave the man and his wife a pile of gold and a fine new house and many shawls to wear. What I like best about that story is how that internal struggle of holding on and wanting to give is depicted so clearly. And also, I like the man's great happiness in winning the battle, in realizing he could make that offering. We can see this for ourselves. What brings happiness? What brings ease in our hearts? In our lives, we acquire and we lose. We have the opportunity to let go or even to give very wholeheartedly. And that act of giving has tremendous power to transform our state of mind. The heart can shift from closed and tight to open and spacious or even joyful. I saw a really beautiful example of this among the staff over at the retreat center a few years back. And it started uh, one day, uh, and I was involved, unknowingly at the time. I was, it was the summertime, and I was uh, at one of my favorite places to be in the summertime, which is a lake near here, where I like to swim. So I was in the habit of taking my lunch to the lake and swimming and then eating lunch on the beach. And sometimes I would even bring some work to the beach and spend the afternoon there just doing some reading or whatever I was working on there on the beach. And on this particular day, that's what I was doing. 
And there were some staff people from the retreat center also there on their lunch break. So we were talking about what a beautiful day it was and how lovely the water was and just how, you know, what a perfect summer day it was. And I remember jokingly remarking that it would be even more perfect if I had a brownie and a cup of tea, a cup of chai, you know, to have after my swim. Being a greedy type, that's the kind of thought that comes to my mind when appreciating a perfect day. So we just laughed about it, and they left, and I stayed on at the beach. And about 20 minutes later, I was reading, and I heard a car horn uh, beeping at the road just behind the beach. And someone yelled out, hey, lady. So I turned around, and it was my friends. They had come back, and they were holding out the window of the car a brownie and a cup of chai, of all things. And it's pretty amazing that they were able to pull this off because around here, you don't find chai that easily. But they just stopped in at this local country store in a town nearby, and they found these things, and they got them and drove back so that they could give them to me. I was so touched by their kindness and also by their delight. Clearly, they were really having fun doing this. They were very happy. And then this just started this cycle of giving because they realized that it felt good and they kind of felt inspired to keep going with it. So they came back to the retreat center and started this kind of spree of generosity at IMS that went on for a couple of weeks. First, they thought of another staff person who was having a hard time, and they brought her flowers, which they left anonymously. Then they came up with this idea, and they posted a sign in the staff dining room offering free um, foot massages, foot baths and foot massages for anyone who wanted to sign up and have one. Quite a number of people did sign up. So this went on for a while. And I found out later that the woman of the two friends who originally offered the chai and the brownie and then started this whole thing, she'd been having a hard time. She was actually kind of depressed. But she noticed on that day when they had this idea to bring me the brownie that she really felt better. So she kept it going, she and this other friend. And the gladness, the happiness that spread around the center during those weeks was quite tangible. It was really beautiful. It's suggested in the teachings that we should reflect on our own generosity as a way to uplift the heart and, and put us in a mind state that's conducive to practice. And I think often that we would really benefit from this. It's so easy to see our weaknesses and our flaws, and it's often not so easy to remember the good. 
to really reflect on the good, our wholesome, skillful actions. So you might like to try it at times. See what it's like to remember times that you've been generous. Notice the effect on the mind and the heart. Sometimes when I'm putting together Dharma talks, I do this. Because it can happen in that process on occasion that one or other of the hindrances can arise. And the wonderful thing about working on a Dharma talk is one is inevitably reminded of what can help, what's useful. So at times, I reflect on the fact that teaching and preparation of a Dharma talk is in a way an act of generosity. It's a form of practice, as is really anything that we do mindfully, wholeheartedly. When I remember this about teaching, I get out of my own way. And then the mind becomes more clear and the heart more free. And the process happens more easily, more readily. Sitting and walking, practicing throughout the day, showing up for what's happening, can also be held in this way as an act of generosity. You're giving. It's a tremendous, uh, tremendously dedicated giving of time and energy and presence to see clearly, to deepen understanding. It's a gift to that very conscious part of ourselves. We're taking care of and nourishing the wholesome and abandoning the unwholesome. Wanting, not wanting, confusion. So we're giving to a very conscious part of ourselves. We're letting go of what's unwholesome, unskillful. This is wise generosity. Generosity associated with wisdom before, during, and after the act is the highest type of giving. Three examples of wise giving are giving with the clear understanding that according to the karmic law of cause and effect, the generous act will bring beneficial results in the future. Knowing that, trusting that. Giving while aware that the gift, the recipient, and the giver are all impermanent. So infusing generosity with wisdom. And the third is giving with the aim of enhancing one's efforts to become enlightened. So it's important to reflect on generosity, to actually make it a very conscious process. In the texts it says that to adorn the mind is actually the best motivation for giving. And adorning the mind means beautifying it by ridding it 
of attachment and greed. I once heard about a workshop that was entitled The Healing Power of Unconditional Presence. This is what we're giving to ourselves. Such a beautiful and powerful gift. So healing. Simply maintaining noble silence is an act of generosity to ourselves and to others, surely. You're also offering each other the incredibly important gift of support as you do your own practice. There are times when we might be struggling or wavering in our energy in practice, but we're held up by the continuity of practice going on around us. This is a tremendous gift, the gift of Sangha. Also, as we accept the simplicity of life on retreat, the simplicity of what's offered in terms of just the basicness of our day, that we've let go of all of our usual distractions or comforts. That's a form of giving on a very deep level because it's said that a renunciation of self-interest is a very high form of generosity. So as we practice in these ways, and the contraction of craving and grasping begins to let go, there's an opening to what we do have. A great appreciation can arise in the heart, which is the other beautiful mind state so closely linked to generosity, gratitude. In thinking about gratitude, I found it hard to really find the right words to describe that state. A fullness of heart. At times it feels almost like a kind of reverence or bowing down in being touched by something. Deep appreciation. It's so beautiful, that quality, and so nourishing. And it's something else that we can draw on for support. There are times in my life when I feel tight or that I'm struggling in some way that I'll just try to remember what I'm grateful for as a wise reflection as a way to help shift that energy and for the heart to be uplifted again. When we remember how much we do have, even in the simplicity of this moment, experiencing a breath, being touched by the beauty of the natural world, 
being held in this incredibly supportive environment, we settle inside. Contentment arises. And out of that contentment, we're able to continue to practice letting go, freeing the heart on deeper and deeper levels. Certainly in our lives, there are many opportunities to give, either materially or to give the fruits of our practice, our presence, our attention, our care. Sometimes it can be so simple. A couple of years ago in the winter, I got quite sick and uh, ended up having pneumonia. And during that time, friends would come by to check in on me. Sometimes they would just come by and sit with me. Sometimes they'd bring some flowers or a card, some soup. Mostly it was just their presence and their love that they were offering. And I remember in that state of vulnerability, there was almost a kind of rawness that went in so deeply. I was so touched, so moved by it. Just the simplest expressions of kindness went right to my heart. It was as though I was being visited by devas carrying pots of soup. (laughs) Often, I was so filled with gratitude and love that Tears would just pour out of my eyes. I know for some of my friends, they were a little concerned. (laughs) But it was actually great appreciation and gratitude. So sometimes generosity can be that simple. Just showing up for someone. Really being present. Caring. And sometimes it's not so simple. It helps me to remember to hold generosity as a practice in a way to surrender to it as a practice in the same ways that we need to surrender to our practice of mindfulness, of clear seeing, when it's not always what we might like to be seeing. There's a selfless quality to generosity that's sometimes a really hard lesson learned. One of my greatest teachers in this has been my mother. Perhaps, like some of you, there are challenges in our relationship. She has a mental illness, and though medication helps considerably, it's not the choice that she makes. So she's pretty unpredictable. If I have a fixed idea about how I can help or what I can offer, I suffer. One of the ways that her particular illness manifests is that she needs to have a bad guy, someone outside of herself to focus on as the source of her suffering. And for most of my life, I had never been in that role. I had always been in the role of support. 
And then a few years ago, for no apparent reason, I was in that role. And it was hugely challenging. I felt under emotional attack and had to withdraw for my own protection. It wasn't an easy process, and I definitely had my own reactivity. But over time, I learned to let go of how I thought it should be. I guess I surrendered in a way. I saw that all I could do was let her be and accept that on some level she was doing what she needed to do to survive. The only thing that I could give at that point was not to put her out of my heart. And then, over time, conditions changed again. And now I'm able to give my presence, my attention, my care, even though still, often, it doesn't really look like what I'd like it to look like. Not to keep anyone out of our hearts. This is a form of generosity. The Dalai Lama, in talking about the gifts of love and compassion, said this, This, then, is my true religion, my simple faith. In this sense, there's no need for temple or church, for mosque or synagogue, no need for complicated philosophy, doctrine, or dogma. Our own heart, our own mind, is the temple. The doctrine is compassion. Love for others and respect for their rights and dignity, no matter who or what they are, Ultimately, these are all we need. So long as we practice these in our daily lives, then no matter if we are learned or unlearned, whether we believe in Buddha or in God or follow some other religion or none at all, as long as we have compassion for others and conduct ourselves with restraint out of a sense of, some, of responsibility, there is no doubt that we will be happy. So we do our best with it. As we embrace the practice of generosity, never putting anyone out of our hearts, including ourselves. I'd like to share this poem. Consider the generosity of the one-year-old who has no words to exchange with you yet and instead offers up her favorite drooled-on blanket, her green rhinoceros as big as she is, her cloth doll with the long blonde pigtails, her battered cardboard books swung open on their soggy pages. If you were If you were outdoors, she would hand you a dead beetle, a fistful of grass, a pebble, by way of introduction or just because. And if a moment later she wanted it back, it would be for the joy of the game that makes of every simple object an offering. This is me. Here is who I am. In the same way, 
Sun drapes a buttered scarf across your face. Rose opens herself to your glance, and rain shares its divine melancholy. The whole world keeps whispering or shouting to you while you worry over matters of finance, of relationship, important issues related to getting and spending, having and hoarding. Though you were once that baby, though you are still that world. So I'd like to close this evening by acknowledging and expressing my deep appreciation and gratitude for your practice. Thank you for the gift of your practice. Let's sit together for a few moments. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.